This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the Cardio Nerds Critical Care Series. My name is Yoav Karpinchev, and I'm one of the co-chairs of the series and a fellow in cardiology and critical care at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm joined today by Dan Ambinder, co-founder of Cardio Nerds. Hey, Dan. Hey, Yoav. How's it going? It's pretty amazing. Really, really great to be here. I'm very excited for today. So we're going to be talking about sedation in the cardiac ICU. And I want to introduce you all to Dr. Natalie Tapascar, who is a fellow lead for this episode. Natalie completed her undergraduate education at Northwestern University, medical school at Case Western, and residency at the University of Chicago, where she served as chief resident. She is currently a third-year cardiology fellow at Stanford interested in advanced heart failure and transplant, critical care, women's cardiovascular health, and cardiogenic shock clinical outcomes. Welcome, Natalie. Hey, Oz and Dan. Thank you so much for that introduction. I'm super excited to be here, and I'm also very privileged to introduce our expert today. It's Dr. Chris Domenico. Dr. Domenico completed his undergraduate education at Villanova University and his PharmD at Thomas Jefferson University. He completed a PGY-1 year at the Cleveland Clinic and a PGY-2 year in cardiology at Johns Hopkins. After training, Dr. Domenico spent seven years as a cardiac clinical specialist at the University of Pennsylvania, where he was an integral member of the CICU team. In 2022, he started working at Novartis, where he is a medical science liaison. Welcome, Dr. Domenico. Thank you for having me. It's a tremendous honor and privilege to be here and help support all the great work that you guys are doing. Dr. Domenico, as someone who's benefited tremendously from your deep understanding of all things cardiology in the CICU, I am especially very excited to have you today. It's going to be such a treat. So the topic of sedation in the CICU is integral to the care of critically ill cardiac patients, but it's often very underappreciated. I know from my own experiences as a resident and fellow working in ICUs that sedation and analgesia strategies can differ depending on the underlying pathophysiology of disease processes at hand as well as your goals for the patient. So today we're gonna to talk about sedation and analgesia in the ICU. Our options are very vast, and many of us are probably only comfortable using a few agents, which is why this topic is really important as the field of critical care cardiology grows. So before we get into the nitty gritty, I'd like to start with an interesting historical tidbit about the care of critically ill patients. The father of intensive care medicine is widely considered to be Dr. Bjorn Ibsen, a Danish anesthetist. He worked during the 1952 polio epidemic in Denmark. This whole field of sedation and analgesia really started with a Hail Mary attempt to save the life of a 12-year-old girl named Vivi. This involved Dr. Ibsen and his team manually ventilating Vivi for eight days via tracheostomy and providing narcotics to relieve bronchospasms. There are records published that recount the minute-by-minute transcription of the dramatic hours in which Dr. Ibsen and his team fought for Vivi's life. It was through this meticulous, continuous care that he provided for early patients with polio that the multidisciplinary intensive care unit for patients with respiratory failure was born. 
And as the indications for ICU care increased, intensivists came to understand the pain and lack of comfort experienced by ICU patients, both related to their underlying disease itself and to all of the invasive procedures that we use that are needed to treat the disease. So this led to the routine start of sedation and analgesia to allow for ongoing adequate monitoring and treatments. And of course, the field of critical care medicine has grown immensely from there. So before we start discussing our really fascinating cases today, we want to start with a warm-up lightning round. So I'm going to start off with just a few common statements that we use in the ICU. Dr. Domenico, I'll read them to you, and we would love if you'd let us know if these statements are fact or fiction. So the first statement is, deeper sedation equals better sedation. What do you think? So I would say that is, uh, depends on the clinical scenario, but is mostly a myth. And the reason for that is there are some outcomes that show that lighter sedation is actually better sedation when it comes to time to extubation, as well as need for a trach. Okay, awesome. So our next fact or fiction statement is the concepts of sedation and analgesia are interchangeable. What do you think about that? That's also a myth. Sedation and analgesia are two independent terms. When you think of analgesia, think of pain. When you think of sedation, think of trying to reduce a patient's agitation or anxiety. Well, that is very helpful and definitely something that I always have to remind myself, especially when I'm in the cardiac catheterization lab and I'm providing both analgesia and sedation and just to address what the patient needs more of at the time of the procedure. So thank you so much for that, Dr. Domenico. Clearly, we have a lot to discuss here. Natalie, now that we've warmed up, we got our juices firing up on these fact fiction and myths. We are definitely ready to take a deeper dive into this topic. How about we start with a case to help illustrate some key points that we will find ourselves seeing in the cardiac intensive care? Absolutely, Dan. Okay, so our first case is Victor Ventura. He's a 48-year-old male who suffered a witnessed cardiac arrest while mowing the lawn two years ago, for which he had received bystander CPR and survived. He was subsequently diagnosed with ARVC and had a secondary prevention ICD placed and was maintained on a beta blocker and amiodarone. He was doing very well as an outpatient until yesterday when he had multiple ICD shocks while walking his dog and presented to the hospital in refractory VT, for which he was rebolused amiodarone, started on an infusion, and then bolused lidocaine and started on an infusion. He was then admitted to the CICU for further management. Given ongoing refractory symptomatic VT storm, despite synchronized cardioversions and antiarrhythmic therapy, the decision was made to intubate and sedate the patient. The electrophysiology team plans to perform both endocardial and epicardial VT ablation tomorrow. Dr. Domenico, before we talk about the specific medications used for sedation and analgesia for this patient, could you just walk us through your general strategy for determining if this patient even needs sedation and analgesia? And what should we be targeting in terms of sedation and analgesia goals overnight before he goes for his procedure? Yes, great question. And you usually think of analgesia first and then sedation, but we usually try to target some type of goals. We have goals for both sedation and analgesia. In analgesia, you don't have to necessarily be on a continuous infusion. If you accomplish your goal with every two, four, six, or eight-hour boluses, you don't need to start a continuous infusion right away. 
Realizing though, the large number of patients probably will not be controlled on boluses alone and you'll need to start a continuous infusion. We have a couple scales that we use for both analgesia or sedation. So they're usually self-reported scales or numeric scales, which are zero to 10. And a patient rates what their pain is with 10 being very high and zero being no pain. It's important to remember two key points here. Everyone has a different pain tolerance, and a couple of things go into that. Most importantly, critically ill patients have moderate to severe pain at baseline, and that often these patients are undergoing procedures, which also adds a significant amount of pain. So don't be surprised when your patients do have a high degree of pain. And just because a patient cannot verbally communicate they are in pain, that doesn't mean that they are in fact not in pain. That's why we also utilize behavioral pain scales, which takes into account such markers as facial expressions, upper limb movement, and compliance with the vent. You can also use other physiological measures such as tachycardia, tachypnea, or hypertension that may also show that your patient is in pain. When it comes to sedation, we also use what's called a RAS scale or the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale. And that's a scale from plus four to negative five, with negative five being unarousable to painful stimulation, all the way up to a plus four, which is extremely agitated and combative. We usually aim for zero to negative one, or some places may plus one to negative one. So we try to titrate our medications to that range. But clinical scenarios may change this goal. For patients who have VT storm, you may want to have a deeper level of sedation, maybe negative two or negative three. When we paralyze patients, we want them to be negative four, negative five. So the clinical scenario often dictates what we set our goals at. Over the years, I've seen more and more use of devices, balloon pumps and impellas. If one of those is located in the patient's groin and you're afraid that by moving, they might hurt themselves, you may want to increase their level of sedation. So again, you may go for negative three or negative four. So although in most of our patients, we do want them that plus one to negative one in the cardiac intensive care unit, you may have a couple scenarios where you want to get them more sedated. That was fantastic. I think that's really important for us to remember that pain can be very subjective and patients can have different scales for pain and that our goals for sedation really change depending on the clinical scenario. So thank you for that overview. When we think about analgesia, though, we often just think about opioids. So since our patient is presenting with VT storm, can you discuss the role of opioids specifically in managing arrhythmias? Opioids bind to a few receptors, most commonly the mu receptors, probably what it's most well known for. And this causes inhibition of ascending pathways in the CNS, alternating the perception and response to pain, as well as produces generalized CNS depression. There is a thought that opioids, specifically fentanyl and morphine, increase the electrical fibrillation threshold of the ventricle. But most of this data was done in dog models or rats, and it's never really been validated with hard outcome clinical trials. It's believed that kappa agonists, which opioids are, have these antiarrhythmic properties. But 
in my experience, opioids alone are rarely effective in these patients unless there's a pain or withdrawal trigger for their arrhythmias. I will say in practice, it's less about the agent and more about the level of sedation or decreasing that sympathetic tone that is driving the arrhythmia. Thanks, Dr. Domenico. That makes a lot of sense that opioids are a set of tools that we can use on top of the rest of the tools that we have in the CICU. I don't know about you, but there are a lot of opioids. We have a lot of choices. And having worked at different hospitals, I know there's different cultures among what to use for sedation. Can we take a step back and think about our different agents, morphine, fentanyl, hydromorphone, remifentanil, sufentanil, methadone? Can you teach us a little bit about these, their pharmacokinetics and differences among them? Yes. And I think you make a great point that a lot of this is driven institutionally. And what you're familiar with may be what you use the most. So I think it's important to break these up into groups. So let's start with morphine, hydromorphone, and fentanyl to begin with. Morphine is the oldest and perhaps most well-known of the group. Its onset is about 5 to 10 minutes and has a half-life of anywhere from 2 to 4 hours, which can be prolonged in renal impairment. It is metabolized by the liver by glucuronidation, and then active metabolites that it creates are renally cleared. So you need to be careful in renal dysfunction as well. Hydromorphone has an onset of 5 to 15 minutes with a half-life of about 2 to 3 hours. It is also hepatically metabolized by glucuronidation, but in its case, it doesn't have active metabolites. Parent drug is excreted from the kidney, so you still have to worry about kidney dysfunction to some degree in patients who get hydromorphone. Finally, fentanyl, which onset could be as low as 30 seconds, but usually about one to two minutes with a half-life of about two to four hours. It is metabolized through the SIP system, so mostly CYP3A4 and 3A5. It can accumulate in hepatic dysfunction, so you do have to be worried about patients with liver dysfunction. It is also highly lipophilic, so it distributes into the muscles and the fat. It has a contact-sensitive half-life and can result in a slow release from fatty tissues. So it can stick around a while in patients on an extended infusion for a long period of time. Then moving on to remifentanil and sufentanil, I'll touch just briefly on these agents because in the U.S. they're mostly used in procedural areas or the OR. Remifentanil is really quick on and off. Onset is about one to three minutes with a half-life of anywhere from three to 10 minutes. It undergoes hydrolysis through plasma S-race, though there's no accumulation in either hepatic or renal impairment. Similarly, sufentanil has an onset that's very quick, one to three minutes with a half-life of around two to three hours and is metabolized primarily in the liver and small intestines via dealkylation. Now, it's important to remember that both of these agents, along with fentanyl, can cause serotonin syndrome, which you should be mindful of, even though this is a very rare occurrence. Lastly, there's methadone. While you probably won't be using this in the acute setting, unfortunately, some of our patients who are on opioid infusion for an extended period of time need to use methadone to be weaned off of it. Onset for methadone can be anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes when given IV, 
but orally it's three to five days with a very long half-life. Patients on methadone may see a half-life of anywhere from eight to 60 hours. It has metabolized hepatically again through the CYP450 enzyme system. So be cautious in patients with hepatic impairment. And for the listeners, maybe the most notable side effect for this is QT prolongation. So be careful in patients with a prolonged QT or on other medications that may also prolong the QT. That was fantastic, Dr. Domenico. Thank you so much for that breakdown. I think it's really helpful to think about dividing all of these opioids into those three categories, like you mentioned, morphine, hydromorphone, fentanyl, thinking about them as one category, remifentanyl and sufentanyl sort of as a second category, and I'm thinking about methadone separately. For our patient here, he has no other medical comorbidities, and he's got intact renal and hepatic function. So which opioid would you prefer in this case, and would you administer it as a bolus or a continuous infusion? It all comes down to personal and or institutional preference. The agent that I use most often and most comfortable with is fentanyl. It's quick on, quick off. And our patients in the cardiac intensive care unit tend now to be on infusion for extended period of time as patients in maybe say a medical intensive care unit or even a cardiac surgery intensive care unit. So you don't have to worry as much about the fat accumulation being an issue. But hydromorphone is also a great alternative and you can convert them if you get hyperanalgesia with fentanyl. But for me, I usually tend to use fentanyl in these scenarios. Thanks so much, Dr. Domenico. That makes a lot of sense. And it's great to hear you think out loud about this specific situation. Now that our patient has adequate analgesia on board, we should probably add a sedative agent as well. The sedatives we generally think of are benzodiazepines, including midazolam and lorazepam, propofol, and dexmedetomidine. Dr. Domenico, can you talk us through the mechanism of these drugs and key pharmacokinetic differences amongst them? Absolutely. Let's start with propofol. Propofol's exact mechanism of action is poorly understood, but it is believed to exert its actions through GABA agonism as well as NMDA receptor blockade. It may bind to a few other receptors as well. It has sedatives, hypnotic, angiolytic, amnestic, antiemetic, and anticonvulsant properties. But, and this is important, no analgesia effects. So it won't do anything for pain. And you can probably tell by looking at it, it's very lipophilic. Onset is anywhere from 15 seconds to two minutes with a half-life that is biphasic, initially being around 40 minutes and the terminal half-life being three to seven hours and even extended further with extended infusions. One of its main known side effects is hypertriglyceridemia. So be sure to check them both at baseline and while the patient is on an infusion. Then benzos. Benzos are GABA agonists. They have sedating, angiolytic, amnestic, hypnotic, and anticonvulsant properties. But again, no effect on analgesia. The main ones we use are midazolam and lorazepam, but some institutions may also use diazepam. Midazolam is quicker on and off with an onset of around two to five minutes and a half-life anywhere from three to 11 hours. Lorazepam has an onset of about 15 to 20 minutes with a half-life of somewhere between 18 and 15 hours. They are both hepatically metabolized. 
Midazolam has active metabolites while lorazepam doesn't. And these metabolites can accumulate in renal dysfunction. Midazolam is more lipophilic than lorazepam. But with lorazepam, you have to worry about polyethylene glycol toxicity as it's a part of the IV formulation and can lead to toxicity if patients are on high doses for an extended period of time. This often presents as a metabolic acidosis. Finally, dexmedetomidine. Dexmedetomidine is an alpha-2 agonist. One way you may think about it is it basically IV clonidine. Onset is usually 5 to 10 minutes with a half-life of about 2 to 3 hours. It is hepatically metabolized, so half-life can be prolonged in those patients with a hepatic dysfunction. DEX only usually gets you to a RAS of negative 1 or negative 2. So if you're looking for deeper sedation, dexmedetomidine might not be the agent for you. It also doesn't cause respiratory depression. So if you're looking for that in your agent, you may have to look for something else. It also doesn't do a great job with acute management of agitation. So another agent will need to be used either bolus or continuous infusion. Thank you, Dr. Domenico. Now that we have a basic understanding of how these drugs work, let's talk about how they might be useful in VT. Can you teach us about the effects of these medications, specifically if they have any effect on the conduction system? And what do you think about how deeply we should be sedating patients with VT storm? I think the benefit of all three classes of these medications is to decrease sympathetic drive. And it isn't really about the antiarrhythmic properties, although you will find some case reports to support this. The best study is probably one out of France that looked at this exact question. They looked at 116 patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy. Patients had an average EF of 25%, and they were all in VT storm. On average, these patients were on two antiarrhythmic drugs, mostly amiodarone and lidocaine. When looking at sedation's effect on them, only about half of them had their VT terminated within 15 minutes of given sedation. The sedation included opiates with or without midazolam or propofol. What they found was in-hospital mortality was decreasing the responders, but there was no difference in long-term survival between those who responded to a sedation versus those who didn't. I was part of a group looking at not only what level of sedation is important, but also if the individual agent itself matters. So is there a difference between propofol versus a benzo versus opiates? And that work is still ongoing. So to answer your question, as deep as we need to stop the arrhythmia. So in some patients, it's zero to negative one, our kind of preferred spot. But you may see they continue to have arrhythmias and you need to aim for negative two, negative three, negative four, and sometimes even negative five. You need to take into account the patient's specific factors that's ongoing, as well as can they tolerate that level of sedation without becoming bradycardic or hypotensive. That was awesome, Dr. Domenico. I feel like now I have a much better understanding of how to approach analgesia and sedation for patients coming in with VT storm and really thinking about how we can dampen down their sympathetic tone and how we can really tailor the therapy to the specific patient. And it definitely sounds like we need more data in this area and we're excited to hear the results of the study that you're involved in. 
So definitely let us know when those are out. So we're going to transition now to our second case. So this is a case of Mr. Chris Sharma, who is a 55-year-old male with diet-controlled diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis on chronic prednisone, and with end-stage non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, who's being worked up for a heart transplant. The patient is admitted to the CCU with hypotension, pulmonary edema, and an AKI, and is diagnosed with cardiogenic shock and started on dobutamine. He unfortunately develops worsening respiratory distress, and we're planning to intubate him for hypoxic respiratory failure. The anesthesia team is at bedside and is asking us to have all the medications ready for induction for intubation. The induction medications that come to mind are usually etomidate, ketamine, and propofol. Dr. Domenico, how would you think about these agents in the setting of a patient with cardiogenic shock? For almost all my patients with cardiogenic shock, I usually recommend etomidate. It has minimal cardiovascular side effects. It can, however, lead to adrenal insufficiency, but in most cases, that's clinically not meaningful. Propofol is a great agent for induction in general, but you get the trifecta. It's a negative inotrope, a direct vasodilator, and can cause bradycardia. So most patients don't do well with this. Ketamine exerts sympathomimetic effects and is a direct vasoconstrictor, including of the coronary arteries. So if someone were to be an ACS patient, it would not be a good agent to select. So it can increase both your blood pressure and your heart rate. So both not ideal in this situation. I know it's often used in the ED and some anesthesiologists swear by it, but it's often not a good choice in this patient population. There's also a lot of state, local, and potential institutional restrictions on who and where it can be administered. So ketamine, probably not the best in this scenario. Midazolam and fentanyl are also safe to use here. So what my normal process of thinking through is this, if they have cardiogenic shock, metomidate, plus or minus fentanyl midaz, if they don't, you would tend to use propofol, but you really can't go wrong with Atomidate here. That makes a lot of sense. And it's great to think about our choices in terms of their physiologic effects. In this particular case, anesthesia chose to intubate with Atomidate, and then they also used topical lidocaine to blunt the sympathetic response to intubation. Now the ICU nurses are asking if we would like dexmedetonidine, benzodiazepines, and or propofol for maintenance of sedation. Dr. Domenico, can you walk us through the hemodynamic and cardiovascular effects of these agents and cardiogenic shock over the long term? What agents do you prefer to use for maintenance of sedation and cardiogenic shock? Yes, great question. And my response may have been different a couple months ago than it is now. There was a recent study that came out of Germany looking at propofol versus midazolam in patients with cardiogenic shock. If you asked me before the study was completed what arm would fare better, I would say, at least from a cardiovascular standpoint, the midazolam arm. In the study, there were 350 patients uh, in total, and what they found was that catecholamine doses were lower on days one through four in the propofol group, and mortality was 38% in the propofol arm versus 52% in the midazolam arm, which was statistically significant, favoring the propofol arm. 
Bark major bleeding was also less in the propofol. Right. Now, I've definitely seen poor outcomes with propofol in practice. You have patients with pulmonary arterial catheters in, and you see propofol goes on and the index goes down, and it starts to improve once the propofol comes up. Same thing with use of dibutamine or milrodone or norepi. As propofol wears off, you tend to be able to come down on those agents. But with all of the negative data with benzos, increased time on the van, increased delirium, increased ICU length of stay, we really try to limit our benzodiazepam use in the ICU. The drawback was always the negative effects of propofol on the heart. But with this new data showing that there may not be any difference and maybe even some benefits of propofol, I would try to use propofol first. For dexmedetomidine, there isn't a lot of data in cardiogenic shock, at least not adults. There's more data in pediatrics. Most of the data in the cardiac world comes from cardiac surgery. The biggest study was what I referenced before, the decade study that looked at dexmedetomidine's use for the prevention of post-op AFib and delirium. It was a placebo-controlled trial that had, on average, the patients had a baseline EF of 60%. The University of Michigan recently looked at their dexmedetomidine use in their cardiac ICU over a five-year period. They had a little bit under 200 patients in that cohort. The average EF was about 45%, and they saw a very high rate of adverse events in this patient population. It was predominantly led by hypotension, which occurred in about 60% of patients, followed by bradycardia and increased use of vasopressor. What they also found was you were more likely to have an adverse event if you had a higher BMP at baseline. I would say my experience with dexmedetomidine in the cardiac ICU was very similar. A lot of patients can't tolerate it and have either hypotension or bradycardia. However, I've also had some success stories using it, especially for delirious patients or patients you're unable to extubate off sedation. So it's something you should always have in your back pocket and don't just throw away. With these agents in general, propofol, dexmedetomidine, which both can decrease your cardiac index, I usually have a cutoff of around 25 to 30%, or at least anything less than that, I give pause to using those agents. I'll be with that recent data published. On the flip side, you know, you may have patients with acute heart failure that didn't have months or even years to compensate. They have a small stroke volume. So EF may not be the most important factor to look at. You have to take the whole patient into account. But there are some of the factors that I look at on whether to try midazolam, propofol, or dexmedetomidine. Thank you, Dr. Domenico. That was awesome. So our next question now is coming from the ICU nurses who are asking us if we would like to start a continuous infusion of morphine for the patient or do boluses. And you've kind of addressed this question before, but specifically for this patient in cardiogenic shock who has an AKI, how should we approach the use of morphine and opioids in general? Yeah, I think this is another great question. If you can get away with boluses alone, 
That's great. And try to do that. But uh, a lot of patients can't tolerate just boluses and they need to get started on continuous infusion. With regards to the renal dysfunction, the good thing about these agents are, you know, they're relatively quick on and off as well as they're titrate to effect. So you have a goal and you can titrate to that. And since they're short acting, you can come down or go up. I think another important point here is you see patients on high doses of infusions and you're like, how did they get here? And oftentimes we forget to bolus whenever we're going up on a drip. And so that can help you get to steady state faster. And you don't need to over-sedate the patient because you kept going up on the drip. And all of a sudden they're on 400 mics of fentanyl and they really only needed to be on 75 or 100 because no one bolts them to get them there. I think another important point here is if you do have very high levels of infusion, that you bolus at an adequate amount. We usually say around 50 to 100% of the infusion. So if someone's on that 400 of fentanyl, 25 or 50 might boluses probably won't get them to steady state if you're going to go up even higher. So try to bolus at around 50 to 100% of the infusion. Thank you, Dr. Domenico. So moving on with our case, after three days in the ICR, patients are known to be delirious and agitated. I know this is something that happens all the time in our ICUs. He's attempting to pull IVs and tubing and often dyssynchronous with the ventilator. Dr. Domenico, are there any strategies or tools we should be using to assess his mental state at this time? And what do you think about antipsychotics in this situation? I know it could be pretty controversial. Yeah, CAM or CAM ICU or tools we commonly use here looks at different things like acute changes or fluctuations in mental status, how attentive the patient is, what their current RAS is, and any disorganized thinking. If you're positive, you're delirious. For how much we use antipsychotics, there's actually not a lot of positive data for them. A lot of people use haloperidol. It's probably the most commonly used agent, but most of the data there is negative. The best data comes with quetiapine, which is a study of only 36 patients. And that's the agent that I usually use. And I try to use it the same way the study used it, starting at 50 milligrams Q12 hours. Now, that may not be safe in a lot of patients, but if I can, that's where I'll start. And then try to get them up to that target dose of 200 milligrams Q12 hours. Again, not every patient can tolerate that or needs that, but that's kind of my process of going about it. The important thing to remember with quetiapine is it has alpha-1 blockade, so you can get some hypertension from it, especially at higher doses. There's also QT prolongation. You may need to worry about, especially when it's on with other QT prolonging drugs. Aripiprazole, although there's some conflicting data, may be neutral on QT, maybe even shorten it, although, like I said, there's also some data that it may prolong the QT is an agent that sometimes we'll also use for patients with very long QT intervals. Even though the data for ICU delirium isn't really there, there's one study in a neuro ICU patient population that it may be beneficial, but overall, like the other agents, doesn't really have much benefit in this setting. Two important points to make here. 
One is that if you do start an antipsychotic, these agents should be titrated off when it's safe and appropriate to do so. Most of the time, this can be done by the time they leave the ICU and almost definitely by the time they leave the hospital. Very few patients need to go home on this, if any, unless there was an undiagnosed condition that they had. And secondly, we should try to use non-pharmacological therapy as well. Good sleep hygiene, you know, things like lights on during the day, off at night. If they wear glasses, usually have them wear their glasses, hearing aids, the same. Is their pain not being fully controlled? Are there unnecessary lines that can be taken out? Are there other things that are limiting mobility? They've been on a lot of opioids. Are they constipated? Do you have a bowel regimen order? Things like that can really help decrease the amount of delirium in the ICU. Thank you so much, Dr. Domenico. Now, after five days in the ICU, our patient remains on a benzodiazepine infusion and fentanyl pushes. Dr. Domenico, are there any strategies or tools we should be using to limit the amount of sedation and analgesia he's receiving? And also, may I ask, what are the long-term outcomes associated with sedation and analgesia use? One thing that you need to evaluate is, is the rascal the same as before? Maybe you had to keep somebody more negative because they had a balloon pump in their groin and you were afraid that they would move and harm themselves. But now the balloon pump's out and the rascal doesn't need to be as negative. And constantly reevaluating that through their time in the ICU. The other thing is, if your rascal is negative one and you're on a hundred of fentanyl and one of medaz, you may be able to get to that same rascal with 75, 50, or 25 of fentanyl or no midazolam. So constantly trying to decrease sedation to maintain that goal. Well, what you should be doing is spontaneous awakening and spontaneous breathing trials, at least daily, as long as it's safe to do so. You know, you should have these sedation vacations. And then there's other things. You know, try to keep the noise down. Again, unnecessary lines and tubes. And are there any agents at home that they should be on that they are on now? So gabapentin for neuropathic pain is another common example that you're not treating their pain, so they tend to be agitated or other psych medications that you were holding for whatever reason, are they safe to restart them to maybe improve some of their mental status? And then with regards to long-term outcomes, the longer patients are rolling sedation and analgesia, the harder it is to get them off. And that leads to increased time on the vent, increased time in the ICU, increased time in the hospital. And then also, of course, the need for tracheostomy. The shorter and lighter sedation that we can have, the better for the patients. That was fantastic, Dr. Domenico. Thank you so much for going through all of that with us. You know, we usually think of the heart failure, cardiogenic shock patients as one of the bread and butter cases we see in the CCU. But really, there's a lot of nuance to taking care of these patients. And we need to constantly be reevaluating their analgesia and sedation strategies. And also, it's really interesting to learn that a lot of the things we do are 
based on very small studies. So it's really fascinating to hear all your perspectives. And I think we've learned a lot now about managing cardiogenic shock patients in the ICU. So we're going to transition to our final case. This is a really great case. So this is Miss Tiny Tao. She's a 67-year-old female with a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and coronary artery disease, status post prior mid-LAD PCI one year prior, who'd had a witnessed cardiac arrest at home and received five minutes of bystander CPR prior to EMS arrival. When EMS arrived, she was found to be in a wide complex tachycardia and received one defibrillation in the field and achieved ROSC prior to arrival to the ER. In the ER, she was found to have a GCS less than eight and targeted temperature management or TTM was initiated with a goal temperature of 36 degrees Celsius. Ice packs and cooling blankets were used to achieve this. She's now transferred to our CCU. At this point, Dr. Domenico, what are your sedation and analgesia goals for this patient who is undergoing targeted temperature management? When I get a patient like this, my first question is always, what are we cooling to? But here we've already decided we're going to go to 36 degrees. How I handle sedation and analgesia depends a little bit on the answer to that question. When the target is 36, some patients come into the hospital already below that threshold. So you're already there when they get there. But pain and sedation medication should be started prior to inducing hypothermia. It's important to use the lowest effective dose of sedation and analgesia medication so you have better success with neural prognostication after they're rewarmed. You still want to use your behavioral pain scares and your RAS in the beginning. A lot of these patients will come in the ED or in the unit at a RAS of negative four, negative five at baseline before any sedation or analgesia is added. And you start the same way you would somebody who hasn't arrested. Try a few boluses of an opioid. And if you are acquiring constant boluses or more than two, you want to start them on a continuous infusion. For sedation meds, they may require initiation due to issues outside of TTM. So if they have vent asynchrony, or things of that nature, you may need to put on propofol or another sedative that's completely outside of the TTM. We try to start with propofol, but understanding that patients in this population may not be able to tolerate this for a few reasons. Hypothermia itself can cause bradycardia, so the additive effects of propofol with this might not be well tolerated. If someone just arrested, let's say from torsades, obviously maintaining an elevated heart rate would be the goal and propofol may lower that threshold. And again, if you start with a benzo outside of propofol, if, if propofol is not tolerated, you again want to start with boluses and only go to a continuous infusion if you can't do boluses themselves. The reason not to start a benzo right away is due to delayed clearance in patients undergoing targeted temperature management. And again, the potential negative impact on neuroprognostication with the drug sticking around longer. Sedation can also decrease 
seizures as well as metabolic demand. So it's important to try to get these patients sedated as soon as possible. I've had a few colleagues who actually believe fully sedating them for 24 to 48 hours is the real benefit and you don't even really need to cool them. But that's a different discussion for a different day. That is fascinating, Dr. Domenico. We really appreciate your approach and thought and thinking about this specific clinical situation and someone who's undergoing targeted temperature management and how that physiology and what we are doing in that physiology affects the pharmacodynamics and the choices that we make. So when our patient arrives in the CCU, she is shivering. So Dr. Domenico, What do you think about this? What is your strategy? I know there's an opioid strategy and a neuromuscular blockade strategy. How do you think about choosing between one and another? Do you have any other tools in your toolbox for shivering? And finally, if we utilize a neuromuscular blockade strategy, what is your favorite way to assess for adequate sedation? So again, this is impacted by whether you target 33 versus 36. Shivering increases baseline metabolic activity and associated with decreased brain oxygen availability, which can lead to worsening hypoxic ischemic brain injury. The shivering threshold is usually considered to be 35 and a half degrees Celsius or one degree Celsius less than the vasoconstriction threshold. To counter this, we usually use the Columbia Protocol or some deviation of the Columbia Protocol. We assess shivering using BSAS or the Bedside Shivering Assessment Scale. Usually every 30 minutes until they reach their target temperature and then hourly after that. It's a scale from zero to three with zero being no shivering and three being severe shivering. Patients are usually on sedation at this point, but that doesn't always help. Next, we try to use surface counter warming, which is often quite successful. If that fails, we usually add acetaminophen. In my experience, that doesn't help that much. But next, we move on to buspirone, usually at a dose of 30 milligrams every eight hours, which does help with some patients. And lastly, we try to keep the mag between three and four. Hypothermia itself can cause hypomagnesemia, and most institutions already have a repletion protocol built into their TTM protocols. But depending on where the upper limit or upper goal is for these patients, you may need to add more. I know some institutions also have a separate magnesium shivering pathway within their TTM protocols. And if all of that fails, then you usually turn to neuromuscular blockade. Just for completeness sake, dexmedetomidine and clonidine also have some positive data, and some institutions may use those drugs as well as meperidine in their protocols. Neuromuscular blockade for 24 hours or so isn't that harmful. It's the consequences of over-sedation that can result from neuromuscular blockade that you worry about. That's why we try to avoid use if possible. What we did at my previous institution was, if you chose 36 degrees, most patients there were targeted for 33 degrees, but if you went to 36 degrees, you automatically got neuromuscular blockade. 
My interpretation of the totality of the data of 33 versus 36 is that the main goal is to prevent hyperthermia. And at 33, you miss a lot less than at 36. So if you're able to keep somebody at 36, there probably isn't any difference. But if you can't maintain it, you have a much smaller buffer than at 33. So we thought to give you the best chance of success of maintaining 36 degrees, we'd want to prevent shivering up front. I was just wondering, are there any special pharmacokinetic or drug metabolism factors to consider during targeted temperature management compared to normal thermic conditions? Yes, basically everything is disrupted. Absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. Many enzymatic processes exhibit temperature dependence. And as temperature decreases, the effect is more profound. The effects may vary between drugs and are not always predictable. From a pharmacodynamic standpoint, concentrations may change at the drug target. While there is some data in this space, there's not a lot. I won't talk too much about absorption since most of the agents we talked about today are parenteral, but one big factor is the volume of distribution. In hypothermia, there's a decrease in global drug perfusion. You have shunning of blood away from non-vital organs and intravascular volume distribution is increased by anywhere from 10 to 35%. There are also changes in protein binding. It may be increased, decreased, or unaltered, depending on the drug. To make things even more complicated, studies have proven this to be medication-specific and not necessarily a class-wide effect. For example, at 32 to 34-degree window, midazolam's volume distribution is decreased by 83% percent compared to what it is at 37 degrees. Then transitioning to clearance, you have decreased enzymatic activity due to protein alteration, leading to a change in the conformational shape and thus altered enzyme-substrate interaction. So depending if it's a pro-drug or not, you may either have too much drug or too little drug. A common example of this that many of the listeners may know is Tecagrelor. Tecagrelor is the P2Y12 inhibitor that isn't a prodrug like clopidogrel and prazogrel. For a while, this was thought just to be a theoretical advantage of Tecagrelor and TTM, but it was found that since you don't need activation of the drug to be active, that the outcomes are better for Tecagrelor than clopidogrel in this space. Renal clearance is usually unchanged with TTM, but it's important to know that you get a decrease in creatinine synthesis and creatinine secretions. So serum creatinine may not be a reliable indicator of renal function during TTM. Looking at morphine and propofol, both of their clearance are decreased by 25%. Some studies have shown vecuronium by 11%. In other studies, midazolam concentrations are as much as five times higher when they're at less than 36 degrees than when they're at normal thermia. So you can see you can easily over-sedate a patient if you're undergoing TTM with high doses of midazolam or other sedatives. 
That was incredible, Dr. Domenico. Thank you so much for walking us through these three cases of VT storm, cardiogenic shock, and targeted temperature management. Our final question for you is, what makes your heart flutter about caring for the critically ill? You know, I think for me is the ability to see a patient that comes in very, very sick and the opportunity to see them walk out the door, whether that's with PCI, whether that's with a new heart transplanted or a VAD. I think not many subspecialties get to see that where you usually patients come into the ICU and you know, unfortunately, they never make it out of the hospital. But in this patient population, there's either procedures or, you know, they just recover from their acute illness. And you get to be part of that pathway along the way. And it's really reassuring and brings up the confidence of the entire unit that you're able to improve patient outcomes and patient well-being. Thank you so much, Dr. Domenico. That absolutely resonates with me. I know I get so excited to know that the minute-to-minute decisions that we're making in the unit affects patients and their ability to come back and say hi to us when they recover from their diseases. So I just wanted to say thanks again for being on this episode, Dr. Domenico. What an amazing approach that you have in thinking about these medications and how to use them in our specific patient population. And one of my big take-home points is really trying to understand and match the medication to the patient and with the different physiologies that we take care of. And I also want to thank Natalie for putting together this incredible script and these three cases that really showed the breadth of what we do in the cardiac ICU. So thanks so much, everyone. I think another important piece to mention is nursing care. Nurses are vital in assessing for all the scores we talked about today, about titrating medications, as well as relaying how those plans turned out. So communication between the nurses and the medical team is vital for success. And also to have a plan B, C, and D if plan A doesn't work. So I think what really makes this work is nursing care and that communication between the two parties to make sure patients have the best outcomes possible. Thank you, Dr. Domenico, for bringing up that incredibly important point and the shout out to our amazing colleagues and nurses in the unit. I think you did a good job highlighting the amount of work that goes into the minute to minute care of these patients, especially when it comes to assessment and titrating of medications. And that's such a great point that it really is our nurses that do most of that and really highlights the importance of communicating like you're saying and making sure that everyone has good plan in mind that's aligned. So thank you. I guess with that, just one more time, thanks so much for this conversation, Dr. Domenico and Natalie and Dan. I learned so much today. 